Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. Well, good morning to you. You can tell from my strange accent that I come from Texas. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when Eleanor got up in, in the conference at her first session, she began by saying something about George III and all is forgiven. I don't quite know what she meant about that. Sound to me rather rude. Um, but we have forgiven you for your treatment of George III. Just, you know, you, well and truly probably the best thing to do with George III, but I shouldn't say that. Uh, we live in the centre of London, right in the middle, about if you visited and you probably went to Parliament Square and Big Ben and Buckingham Palace, probably, you know, if you hadn't got anything better to do, and we live about seven minutes' walk from Buckingham Palace, so we're right in the centre. And as uh, Darren said, we, we um, do stuff with the, the vineyard. Or the scan- those who live in Norway and Sweden and Denmark can't pr- pronounce their Vs, so they talk about the vineyard. <laughs> we talk about the, w- 
the vision and value of the vineyard. They talk about the vision and the value of the vineyard. <laughs> and it's uh, such fun to mock. I do enjoy it, to mock them. So you're not the only people who ruin the English language. I just wanted to assure you of that. You're not alone in that mission to destroy what God gave. Ha ah, ha, just kidding, just kidding. Um, joking apart, we have loved our, uh, the th it feels like much longer, but the th few days we've been here with the garden, and it's a wonderful church, and we love your leaders. You've got some, uh, congratulations on your choice of leaders, by the way. You've chosen very wisely, and they are wonderful, and uh, we've had a marvelous time, and thank you for being so hospitable. Never mind this extraordinary sermon series that's about to start next week. I'm coming back. But, um, oh yeah, and the waffle bar, what's that about? Um, if you have a Bible or a digital device that has a Bible on it, would you like to turn to first, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians? And in fact, it's going to come up. I want to talk about what Christianity looks like. <clears throat> so, we'll start at chapter 1 of, of 1 Corinthians, and verse 18, and the text will come up there in a second. For the message of the cross, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person, he says? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, to save the two. Let me just pause it, just hit the pause button for a moment. A little bit of context might help you. In the culture of the city of Corinth, at the time that Paul was writing this letter to them, very much like the Western world today, in your culture and ours back in the UK, two things were highly prized. One was wisdom, and the other was power. Wisdom, it was cool, um, it, was, it was cool to be wise, inter, to, to be sophisticated intellectually was very, very cool. And conversely, in their culture, they were dismissive of, contemptuous of foolishness. Yes? Similarly, with, with a power. In their, a bit like our culture, they highly valued power, and again, the opposite, weakness, they despise. So you probably know in their culture, in the ancient world, weakness was cons considered despicable. So for that reason, women who were perceived as weak were despised and badly treated. Slaves were despised. People with disabilities were despised. Cowards were despised. Do you see? So wisdom and power was it, and foolishness and weakness was despised. That's, that was the culture that Paul was writing to. And some of the people 
that, that some of that thinking began to leak into the church. And some of the people were coming and saying, look, when this guy Paul, the apostle, came to Corinth and he talked about Jesus and he talked about the good news of Jesus, he, he talked about, he didn't present it in the right way. He should have talked much more about being power, powerful and being wise because that would have worked in the culture. You see, So they were, in the church in Corinth, they were beginning to criticize the way that Paul had framed his, what, what he had to say. And they were beginning to try to upturn it. So at that point, are you, is this making sense? At that point, Paul then writes them this letter to say, no, 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 no. I didn't, the, the way I presented things was not a mistake. It was quite deliberate. And you've got it wrong. I didn't get it wrong. <laughs> so... All right, shall we, have another, shall we have another run at it? And you'll see the way the words power and weakness and foolishness and, and wisdom, the, he, he plays with those words. Okay? I trust I make myself obscure? Great. Okay. God was pleased, with, um, God was pleased through the foolishness of what, was, of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs... And Greeks look for wisdom. So Jews are saying, show me, give me a sign. Greeks are saying, on the other hand, prove it. Have you ever come across people who say to you, well, show me. If God's real, show me. If God exists, show me. Or some of your more intellectual friends will say, well, prove. Prove all this makes sense. Prove Christianity makes sense. So nothing's nothing's changed, really. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach, this is Paul speaking, we preach Christ. And by the way, the Christ I preached to you was a crucified Christ, a weak, shattered, butchered, executed Christ. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, did you see? But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Everybody, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So he's saying, okay, just wind, wind the, the, the rewind button. Just go back to the time when you first met Jesus for yourself. Remember that time in your life? He said, that was what he's referring to, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, you know, by all means boast. That's not a problem. Boast away. But make sure you boast in the Lord. So it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, that is when I visited you in the city of Corinth, I, I didn't come with eloquence and human wisdom. Otherwise, I didn't play the sort of intellectual games that your philosophers in Corinth played. I didn't do any of that. No, no. 
as I, I didn't, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ. He's about to put his pen down or his quill down, and he says, oh, no, and the Jesus Christ I'm talking about is him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear, trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We'll stop there. It's wonderful stuff. I love this. It's so wonderful. Anyhow, when you hear these paragraphs read, or you read them on your own digital device, tell me, what do you immediately think of? What words spring effortlessly into your mind? I'll tell you. <laughs> Hagen Das. Hagen Das. Sorry, it's banoffee. It should be vanilla and chocolate chip, but I apologize. Okay, so let's go on. That's obvious. Ah, okay. Do you know this is a? Do you know the story behind Hagen Das? Do you, do you, this is perfectly true. Do you know the story? Let me tell you. In the, 19, uh, in the 1920s, a couple emigrated, presumably through Ellis Island, from Poland to the New York, New York City. And for the next 30 years, um, there was a couple called Reuben Mattis and his wife Rose. And for the next 30 years, Reuben um, sold homemade ice cream. He literally had a horse and cart, and he went around the streets of New York, New York selling ice cream. Perfectly true. And then in the 1950s, the, the couple had a brilliant idea. They said to themselves that the ice cream lovers of New York City would be willing to pay a little more for something they perceived as different and upmarket. And they got, they, they, they got as far as coming up with a new recipe. They you know, they got every, the production was all, but they were just struggling to find a name, what to call it, for this new product. And literally, st standing at the kitchen sink in their Bronx apartment in New York, Rose came up with the name Hagen Das. She just took a, a, a few. A, a few consonants and a few vowels, she came up with two words and put a hyphen between the two. They mean absolutely nothing. <laughs> They're completely meaningless. I, I mean, I confess, I'd always assumed there was a Mr. Hagen and a Mr. Das, and they were probably Scandinavian. And they got together, you know, a bit like, you know, the British motor car Rolls-Royce. There was a Mr. Rolls and a Mr. Royce, and they got together. And, or Ben and Jerry. I mean, they were two individuals, I think, in in New England somewhere, whatever it was, and they, were, they got... And I assume it's the same time, it wasn't. It's, a it's, it's out of nothing. It's, it's entirely meaningless. They just thought it sounded good. And I know that some of you here are old enough to remember the early tub. What do you call that, a tub? No, a 
Who? Cartan. The early Cartans actually had on the side of them a map of Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Had nothing whatever to do with Scandinavia, nothing at all. I promise you. My point is, my point is, the fact that the name was almost unpronounceable and totally without any meaning whatsoever was no hindrance, no bar to it being a huge marketing success. And you see, the issue was exactly the same in the church in Corinth, and it is for us. How much should Christianity be concerned about its image, how it portrays itself? Do you see? And the people in Corinth were saying, look, Paul got it wrong. We need to market Christianity differently. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Do you see? Um, you know the definition of marketing? Advertising, do you know the definition? Advertising may be described as the science of arresting human intelligence long enough to extract money from it. <laughs> so Paul says, look, I got it right. I'm tired of your arrogance and your self-assertiveness. Let me tell you how it is. So he says, just with me, look for a moment with me at the product and the sales force of Christianity. First of all, regarding the product, Christianity seems to present a weak, foolish message. Quite deliberately, the gospel I preached appeared at least to the outsider, a, a weak, foolish message. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross, he writes, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who have been saying, well, you say now, John, why, why foolishness? Why would he write that? I'll tell you. Because the idea that you can find out the truth about God at the crucifixion of Jesus is absurd. See, Christianity is all about a person who actually lived and actually walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And um, in the capital city, Jerusalem, on the outskirts of the city, there was a sort of recycling center, a rubbish dump that had dual function. It was where the city dumped its garbage. You call it garbage, we call it rubbish. But it also doubled up as a place of execution for criminals. And on one particular occasion, uh, there were three uh, people being executed. And it's the one in the middle you, you really want to think. On either side of this man in the middle, there were a couple of thieves being executed for their crimes. The one in the middle was in a totally different category and his name was Jesus. Do you see? And so the idea to think that, and Christianity has always said, if you, want to know, if you want to know about God, you know, all of us are wandering around in a fog. We don't know things. We have limited understanding of the universe. So we're, we, we don't know, so we're looking for God and looking for an encounter with God. And Christianity has always said, if you, the clearest um, insight you'll ever get to who God is and what he's like, 
You've got to go to this hill outside the city, to the rubbish dump, where this man, the one in the middle, is being executed. And the more you look there, the more you'll see the magnificence of God. It's extraordinary. So the idea that the God of heaven would reveal himself at the bloody, messy scene of torture and execution, which is what crucifixion is, you know, just think about it. The screams, the blood, the stench, the flies, the cursing, the language, the blasphemy. To think at that particular moment, on that particular occasion, that God is revealing himself is just was utterly ridiculous, say some. Just imagine for a moment, these are curtains here, aren't they? Just imagine you'd come in this morning and the curtains were shut. And just uh, play with me, you know, give, uh, patronize me just for a moment, and just imagine that God was, the, the curtains were shut and God was there and we in the, in the audience knew nothing. So the only way we would know anything about God was if they opened the curtains just a bit. And that's just exactly what creation, the Bible tells us, that creation was God drawing back the curtain. The heavens declare the glory of God. That wasn't enough, so God opened the curtains a bit more when he, he isolated a particular and focused upon a particular people, the people of Israel, the Jews. That wasn't enough, Revelation. So the curtains were opened even wider, and he sent prophets several hundred years later. And they spoke, and they represented God. Even that was enough. So eventually, God flung the curtains wide open like they are now when he sent his son to die. And the curtains were open at the widest at the crucifixion. You got it? And to many people, it was just ridiculous. What was it John McEnroe used to say? You cannot be serious. But I can't say it in the way he did. I, I have a speech deformity, do you see? I mean, it was the idea, and you must have met people who say, you what? You must, this is absurd. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's like talking about boiled ice. It just doesn't compute. I don't know what you're talking about. Then look at verse 24. Verse 24, Paul writes, but. It's as like he, he strolls over to the drum kit and he gets one of those stick things and hits the cymbal here as hard as he can. With a crashing sound, he says, but. Look at it. To those whom God has called. To them, you see that, verse 24. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Christ, do you see what he's saying is God's wisdom and God's power has been condensed, uh, encapsulated, made tangible in the crucifixion, such as God's love for his son and for the world. In other words, he's saying in Christ, in Jesus Christ, God has overpowered and outsmarted everyone. How did he do it? He did it with his lavish, recklessly generous grace and forgiveness. And I'll, he said, I'll take on myself the, the stuff and the punishment for all your sin, and I'll take it to me so that you don't get punished. It's phenomenal. So, to, outs but to outsiders, it's just weak, foolish nonsense. 
Second thing he says, is just to drive the point home, he said not only does Christianity to outsiders appear to have weak, foolish message, it also appears to have weak, foolish messengers. Weak, foolish messengers. Um, uh, um, if you ever come and visit London, or if you have in the past, you might have gone to Buckingham Palace, as I mentioned, or Parliament Square and Big Ben and all that. You might also have gone to possibly the Tower of London, or possibly to Westminster Abbey, where the, the, all the monarchs, the sovereigns, are crowned. And if you happen to walk in there, in the main, the main front door called the West, the Great West Door, if you walk in there, uh, well, as you approach, actually, as you approach, there's a large... Um, Stained glass, big circular rose stained glass window, huge thing, above the main entrance of the Great West Door. And from the outside, it looks rather grey and drab. Do you have that word? A bit sort of boring, just grey and rather uninteresting. But go in, go in the front door, go in the Great West Door, walk a number, a few yards, um, and then inside, up the big nave, then turn around. And then look up, and you'll say, me, oh my, that is stunning, and it is. Where the light is behind it, what appears from one side to be drab and drear and boring, from the inside is absolutely spectacular. Most beautiful thing. And Christianity is like that. There are some of you here you used to think Christianity was drab, boring, and killjoy. Then you, as it from the outside, then you came and you met some of these Christian people and you gradually, you know, you had your answer, questions answered and you said, and then you met Jesus yourself. And suddenly you're saying, me, oh my, I had no idea from the outside that actually from the inside he's so beautiful and magnificent. Do you see, and that's what Paul is saying here, not only weak, foolish message, weak, foolish messengers. Uh, look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Just think back to what you were. Not many of you were wise by human standards. And I don't mean to be rude to anybody here, but just take a cross-section of this church. There, there, probably, there may be a few people here who have PhDs in philosophy, or moral philosophy, or logic, or something, and... You know, and you're a professor somewhere, great. I mean, you don't need to apologize. I'm just saying, statistically, there aren't many in that category. There are not many, he says, who are influential. I mean, the, the, I, the, the mayor may be here, mayor of the city, in which case, uh, you're very, very well. Madam, you're very, very welcome. But that's not the point. I'm just saying there aren't many movers and shakers here, I imagine. There aren't many of you of noble birth. There aren't many of you who, whose background is such that by a misfortune of birth, you're lord or lady something or other. If you are, again, it's not your fault. You were born with it. But most of us are plain ordinary, is what, I, what Paul is saying. See, the church has never been popular in the world. Uh, it's interesting. Jesus' messengers have never been particularly well-received or been impressive at one level. In uh, AD 178, 
So that's roughly just a little over 100 years after Jesus had been on the earth and then before he returned to heaven. A man called Celsus wrote this. Let no cultured person draw near Christianity. None wise, none who are sensible. Ah, but if anyone is ignorant, anyone a fool, oh, you can come on in. Yeah, sure, you're welcome. In other words, if you're an idiot, Christianity is just for you. But if you're sensible, if you've got any sort of, you know, any sort of cognitive whatever's at all, if you're a decent human being, then stay well away. Of Christians, he wrote, we see them in their own houses, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. They're like a swamp, he only gets a bit carried away, they're like a swamp of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs, this is weird, frogs holding a symposium in a swamp <laughs> or a collection of worms in a lump of, um, I better say, mud. <laughs> out of politeness and not wishing to offend anybody. Do you see? And not much has changed, certainly in the UK, and I suspect in the US here, that Christians don't have it good. But yet again, do you notice in verse 27, Paul strides over to the drum kit, and he hits the cymbal again with this crashing but. A second time, he says, but, verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world, now, just notice that verb, God chose. Do you see it? Then he goes, what does he say next? It's further on, the same sentence, God chose. The second time, just in case you were asleep the first time and you didn't get it, here's, he's repeating it. And then he goes on, next verse, next sentence, he chose three times, he says it, just to drive the point home. God chose. Chose, God chose, God chose. It isn't, in other words, the very, the very fact you're here this morning, sitting on these rather uncomfortable seats, the very fact you're here is not just the result of a random collision of molecules since time began. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. God say, God is, God, Paul is saying... And the Holy Spirit is saying, God is speaking through Paul, and he's saying to us, God chose you. God chose you. He says it three times just to drive the point home. God chose. The very, it's a bewildering and astonishing and utterly humbling fact. Because your immediate, your immediate response is, well, why on earth me? Why not somebody else? Quite. Good question. No idea. If you ever discover the answer to that, write a book quickly, because you'll make a lot of money. But the fact is, he has. God chose. There's nothing random, do you see? The very fact that you're here this morning is because God wanted you here. The very fact that some months or years ago, you came and discovered Jesus for yourself, and he's made such a whacking big difference in your life, is because God has chosen you. Well, I'll have you. Yes, I'll have you. And I'll have you, and I'll have you too. Yeah, you, and you, and you. And the person who's asleep in the background, I'll have you too. I want you, I'm choosing you. It's not an accident. One of your former presidents, none other than Abraham Lincoln, once wrote, God must love common people. Because he made so many of them. 
<laughs> of us. It's as if God says, I'm going to take ordinary people, and God bless you, I mean, look around. Just look around a moment, you know, you're allowed to do that, look around. In the nicest possible way I can say it, you're, we're ordinary. Yeah. God says, I'm going to choose ordinary people, and I'm going to make them extraordinary. I'm going to take nobodies, or at least people who are considered nobodies, particularly by these, the wise and powerful elite. But maybe you consider themselves to be nobodies. And God says, I'm going to make them into somebodies. It's the most astonishing truth. It's the most wonderful truth. So if you, if you ask who from God's perspective, you know, just looking at things through God's lenses, look, you put it like that, looking at things through God's lenses, who are, lenses, who are the, in reality, who are the powerful people on earth? Who are the wise ones? Who are the powerful ones? Who are the movers and shakers on this earth, in this city? You get the astonishing answer from the Bible. Believe it or not, it is the church. It is the local church. Because God takes ordinary people, nobodies like you and me, he loves us, he forgives us, he introduces us to Jesus, he gives us new life, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon us, and in the process makes us. So the only explanation, I mean, how is it with all you, you lot, random, seemingly random, how is it, how is it that this church has even formed? Answer, because God has brought you together. It's the only explanation you can come up with. Did you ever do f chemistry, no, physics at school? I remember the first physics lesson I ever had, they gave us a piece of, just an ordinary piece of, you know, letter, um, paper, and then a, what looked like a pepper pot, but in fact inside it had tiny bits of metal called, we call them iron filings, what do you call them? Iron filings, oh good, oh we are tracking. <laughs> Common language separated by, anyhow, the Atlantic Ocean. So, you sprinkle, do you remember, you sprinkle the, if you ever did this, you sprinkle the iron filings on the paper, and it's a completely random sort of part, spread of iron filings. Then you've got a huge magnet. Do you remember that? And you shoved it underneath, and lo and behold, it's the electromagnetic field, electromagnetic field causes this beautiful pattern to emerge with the iron filings. Do you remember that? Do any of you do that? Yeah, do you remember it? That's what the Holy Spirit does with people, ordinary people like you and me. It's like the Holy Spirit is like the magnet, and he forms this beautiful pattern that we call the garden, the church. So you say, okay. And Paul indeed goes on and says in verse 3, I'm shut up in a minute. Whoops, yes, I must. Um, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Basically, I didn't cut an impressive figure. When I came to you, I'm not a celebrity, I'm not a superstar. I came to you, he says, weak, fearful, and trembling. But, he says, God worked. But, God worked. Here's the great apostle Paul. What do you mean he was weak and fearful and trembling? 
You know, one of the reasons that preachers wear trousers, uh, pants, you'd call them, you know, it's because it disguises their, you know, nobly, their knocking knees. You can't see them so clearly, as if I was wearing a kilt or a skirt, you know. And that's normal, do you see? We think, in order to be powerful... Yeah. Who was the fellow who used to wander around in a suit in New York? And then, when there was an emergency, he'd go into a telephone booth and come out wearing pyjamas and a cape. <laughs> who? Superman. Superman, thank you. Well, yeah, Superman. And we think, you know, we think that somebody needs to be healed, somebody is sick, needs to be healed, and then we start looking around, We're just at work, you know, or in Starbucks or whatever, somebody needs prayer, and then you think, well, where on earth is Darren when you need him? You know, a decent, proper Christian. Come do this. Or we look around for a telephone kiosk that we can jump, a booth that we can jump into and come out as, the Apostle Paul! <laughs> Does, that's how we think of it. It does not work like that. And Paul says, I'm the chief example of this. I came weak, fearful, and trembling. That's normal spirituality. As opposed to this sort of brazen stuff, I can duke it out with, you know, I'm, I'm sort of Superman. No, you're not. I'm not. So it's very, it boils down to this, do you see? You want to serve Jesus? Of course you do. You wouldn't be here otherwise. You wouldn't waste your time on a Sunday morning. Of course you want to serve Jesus and love him. And what Paul is saying here in writing to the Corinthians is that you really only need three things. Number one, you need to love him. Love Jesus. And you do, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Number two, you need to have a pulse. Just check. In other words, you've got to be alive rather than dead. That's all I'm saying. And the third thing he's saying is all, the only other qualification you need in order to serve and love Jesus and be effective in the world that you move in is to be weak. If it doesn't work if you're strong, Paul says it doesn't work. You've got to, you know, the equivalent of fearful, weak, and trembling. That's the qualification, ladies and gentlemen. That is the, that's what, that's what, qualifies you to do this, do you see? Doesn't, many of us think, well, that disqualifies me because I'm not like Superman or the Apostle Paul or Darren. And Paul says, no, no, you've got your thinking upside down. Let's turn it the right way up. And you just need to be weak. It'll be fine. That'll use you. Okay? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Sir.